I invite you to take your Bible and let's open it to the book of 1 Timothy as we continue our study of this great letter. And uh, this is the, the second last sermon in this great letter to 1 Timothy that we'll be looking together as we come both to the end of the book and to the end of the year. And I think that it is fitting to see what, what Paul is calling Timothy to do here as we consider a new year, what we ought to aim for and flee from and pursue together as God's people. So let's read together God's word. Um, and we'll read 1 Timothy 6 from verse 11. And this is the reading of God's word. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Join me in prayer. O Father, we come to you with deep dependency. We ask, Lord, that you would free us from our flirtations with sin, that we would flee from it and pursue righteousness and pursue these virtues. Lord, help us to work out our own salvation as you work in us. So, Father, help us, give us clarity in this text, and may we do what it says in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, one reason why the health and wealth or the prosperity gospel is so bad is because it gives a false impression about the Christian life. It gives this idea that if you become a Christian, that if you put your faith in Christ, then your problems will go away. Your life will be easier from now on. But but the, the reality is often your problems and your trials will increase when you become a Christian. Life will become harder. Now, yes, you enter into salvation and the peace of the Holy Spirit and fellowship amongst the saints and having eternal life. So it all makes it worth it. But becoming a Christian is like entering a battlefield. Suddenly, there is a war with yourself. Your own flesh, your desires are now at war with the desires of the Spirit. And you will need to put to death the deeds of the body. You enter into a war with this world to stand firm against the streams and the currents of lies and pleasures and worldliness that the world wants us to do and you also enter into a war with the devil suddenly he has a focused hatred for you because you are a follower of Christ and our text gives us a flavor of this what we can call a holy war that's the title of the sermon Um, And this is what we can see here. Timothy is engaged in a holy war. And you can feel Paul's energy here as he gives his final charge or command to young Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. You can feel his passion 
and his urgency when he says in verse 11, As for you, O man of God, that O, it's like a sighing of the soul. Paul longs for Timothy to not just hear these things, but to do them. Notice how the commands here flow in rapid succession, one on top of each other. Verse 11, flee these things, pursue. Verse 12, fight. Verse 13, I charge you. Verse 14, to keep the commandments. Do you feel the, the, the energy, the urgency of Paul in this, in this section? He's like a general who is walking in front of his army, preparing them for battle, saying things like, be ready to die. Don't be lazy. Think of your family. Don't be a coward. Fight. Bracing and energizing his soldiers to go all in. So, beloved, as we approach the end of the year, we all feel that end of the year fatigue. I know all of us with the heat and everything, we are looking forward, most of us looking forward to vacation and a time of rest. And that's good. But I believe this text comes to us in a time like this to say, even though we're resting physically, make ready to fight another year of holiness, another year for your own holiness, for the truth, for eternal life, a totally committed, consecrated life to God and to live with an eternal perspective. And that would be our outline. There's five things Timothy needs to fight for in this passage and by application, all of us need to fight for this. So the first thing you need to fight for and we need to fight for is to fight for our holiness. We need to fight for personal holiness. Notice this dramatic shift in verse 11 at the beginning when he says, but as for you. So he was just speaking about the false teachers and everything they do wrong and he shifts and he says, but as for you, Timothy, do this. Paul says it's not enough just to know what false teachers are like and what false teachers are teaching. You need to pursue holiness for yourself. Beloved, listen to me. I fear that sometimes we are so obsessed with what others are doing, what others are saying and teaching, how that person gets the gospel wrong, how that person is not living according to the Bible, and we think that's enough. And we don't ourselves then live out what we believe. The war begins by taking personal responsibility for your holiness, not for somebody else's holiness. You see, we are experts at spotting other people's sins, right? We can see the splinter from a mile away and we forget the plank that's inside of our own eyes. I love the example in John 21 verse 20 when at the end when Jesus said this to Peter. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who has leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. <laughs> you see, we should, there is a sense where we should not worry about other people's walks with the Lord. And you should follow the Lord. You follow Christ. And we see there's a twofold strategy for holiness. There's a negative side and a positive side. So the negatively, look at the negatively, it is to flee, to run away. Look at verse 11 when he says, but as for you, a man of God, flee these things. Now these things refer to what verse 10 spoke about of the love of money is the root of all evil or the desire to be rich or things like quarreling and envy and slander. 
So that's what Timothy needs to run away from. The word flee is not a neutral thing. It's not to stand still and to just consider. It is to run away. That's the attitude. Sirach 21 verse 2, which is like an apocryphal book, but he gives a beautiful illustration of this. He says, as from before a snake, flee from sin. For if you approach, it will bite you. Its teeth are lion's teeth, destroying people's lives. Even just approaching sin is too dangerous. Beloved, we cannot flirt with sin. Our problem is that we often think we are stronger than we are and we can view sin like viewing a menu without ordering. I'm just looking at the menu. I'm not going to eat. I'm just setting the table. I'm not going to eat. We often see how close we can come before we sin and think that's okay. The opposite is we're doing, what we're doing when we're doing that is the opposite of what we are pr- should be praying every day. Lord, lead us not into temptation. But we often lead ourselves into temptation. Often we are like Lot, where the angels have come and warned us, warned us that sin will destroy us. And we, what does the Bible say about Lot? He lingered. He lingered. We just hang around to see what's going to happen. No, we should be a coward when it comes to sin and run. That's the best strategy. When you enter temptation willingly, that's already a sinful attitude in your heart. You see, already just being wanting to be tempted is evil. Wanting the temptation is something that you must put to death. That is already a loss because you haven't fled. So let us stop being neutral to our own sin and flee with all of our might. That's the negative. We should put off sin, but there is a positive as well. The positive is pursue. Pursue these things. Look at verse 11. Six virtues. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You see, the Christian life is not just about everything you should not do. It's also about what you should do. There's a positive side of it as well. Ephesians 4 gives a beautiful illustration of imagining a thief walking into our church and says, I am no longer a thief. I am free from stealing. And all of us would clap hands, but Paul would say, you're not done yet. Have you found a work and are you giving your money away? You see, that's the opposite of stealing is when you're giving your money away. That's freedom from greed. Don't just not lie. Speak the truth. Don't just stumble, not watch pornography. Give thanks for God for everything he has given you. You see, there's a, pos- a negative and a, and a positive. And what must we do with these things? The word is pursue. Now, I want you to think of that word, pursue. When, when we see a young man pursuing a woman, what happens there? Right? We, say, we see a man that is fixated, kind of like a holy obsession with spending time and gaining her heart. That's pursuing. Or a man pursuing a career. What does that man do? He works hard, he plans, he sacrifices many things so that he can be qualified to get the work he wants. And so here, when we say pursue these things, you should think things like this, planning, strategizing, using of your money, your time, your effort. These things do not come automatically. You must pursue them. So here, six virtues, and we're going to just run through them, and you can put them in groups of three, And you can put two and two together. So the first two things we pursue is pursue righteousness and godliness. 
Righteousness is to do what is right in the sight of God. That's righteousness as it applies to us. To do what is right in the sight of God. So pursue that in every area of your life. Godliness refers mainly to our relationship with God. To have a Godward life. To be thinking of God. To be devoted and loving God. To fear Him. Secondly, pursue faith and love. Faith is that sweet, quiet, calm trust in God our Father. Trusting Him in every circumstance. His goodness, His sovereignty, His infinite wisdom. And love, of course, is the summary of everything we need to do. To love God and to love our neighbor, to pursue that. And then pursue steadfastness and gentleness. And I want to stand a little bit still here. The soldier of Christ will need endurance and steadfastness to finish the race. This pursuit is not a marathon, not a sprint, it's a marathon. We need endurance when we fail in our holiness. To know that the righteous fall seven times, but he stands up. Because we are not justified by our works, but by Christ's work. We need endurance, both when we struggle with things outside of the church and inside of the church. But the last word struck me, and that is to pursue gentleness. Now, that's kind of weird to call a soldier to be gentle, right? Imagine this big banner, soldiers wanted. We want gentlemen, men who are gentle to come and fight. It's like, no, we want violent men, aggressive men, right? But no, for Timothy, remember, this is a holy war. We lose when we lose our cool, <laughs> okay? Timothy, you are a soldier and you need to wage your war with gentleness. Don't confuse gentleness with weakness. It's not the same thing. It's actually the opposite. Gentleness is power under control, refusing to to raise your voice, refusing to act in a harsh way towards someone that's weaker than you. In fact, one lexicon defined it like this. It is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. That's gentleness. Strength that accommodates to somebody else's weakness. John Stott said that we need steadfastness for difficult circumstances and we need gentleness for difficult people. (laughs) So those two virtues we desperately need. Steadfastness for the difficult times and gentleness for the difficult people. Now, I couldn't help but think about the way I treat my children, the weakest of all, those little, weak, fragile little children, and how quickly I am not gentle with them. They are, and if you know children, they are selfish, they fight over petty things, they cannot share, they cannot love each other, and then I lose my control of my anger. But we need to pursue gentleness with the weak by saying in that moment when your emotions wants to flare up to say either I'm going to be harsh with my strength, hurt them with my anger, or I'm going to respond in gentleness. These are the qualities we need to fight well. It starts with taking personal responsibility for your own walk with God, to flee sin, worldliness, and to pursue a Christ-like character. That's the first thing you need to fight for. Fight for holiness. Secondly, we should also fight for the truth. We should also fight for the truth. Look at verse 12 when it says, fight the good fight of the faith. Now it's interesting to know that Paul immediately follows his call of gentleness 
to fighting. He says, be gentle and now go and fight. So there's a kind of fighting that's compatible with gentleness. So we shouldn't be so gentle that we are jellyfish that cannot stand for truth. We shouldn't be so gentle in the name of gentleness. No, I don't fight at all. I'm just an agreeable person and we never stand up for the truth. Christians need a backbone to be able to stand up for the truth. The fight for the faith, notice the article, the faith points to the truths of the Bible, the gospel, the central realities of God. Doctrines like Jesus being truly God and truly man. Doctrines like the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he died in our place on the cross. The bodily resurrection of Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The five solas. In the scriptures alone, truths like that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that men and women are in the image of God equal and yet different in the holy institution of marriage in the way he has made it, not the way the world defines it. These are the things we fight for. Fighting for the rights of the unborn is a good fight of the faith as we argue that these babies in the womb are made in the image of God. When we argue with Jehovah Witnesses that Jesus is truly God, Jehovah God, we are fighting for the good fight of the faith. When we correct any false teaching that is endangering the gospel, we are standing for the faith. So yes, we should pursue personal holiness, but we should also stand for the truth publicly. We should not separate what God has joined together. Some Christians want to fight for truth, but they don't care about their personal holiness. And other Christians only care about their own walk of the Lord and not about fighting for the truth. We should do both. Third thing we need to fight for is we need to fight for eternal life. This one might surprise you when Paul says this to Timothy. Fight for eternal life. In verse 12, he continues, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That verb, take hold, is also a violent term. It's an aggressive term Yeah, Listen to Acts 16 verse 19 where the same word is used here. But, it's, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized. That's the same word translated here in take hold of. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the ruler. So again, you don't get the idea of a half-hearted sort of attitude towards eternal life. It's like, no, take it, grab hold of it. Make, it, make a once-for-all decision that you will inherit heaven by following Christ, by submitting to his lordship, by trusting in him fully for your salvation. Now, there's an obvious question we need to ask is, why should Timothy take hold of eternal life if he already has eternal life we think of verses like john 3 16 whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life john 5 24 when jesus says truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has present tense has eternal life so if we believe in christ we already possess eternal life in our text it does not seem like timothy already it does seem like Timothy already has eternal life. Look at what the rest of verse 12 say. It says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you've made the good confession. 
So Timothy's already been called to eternal life, and he's already made a good confession about eternal life. In other words, the calling refers to the call of God in his heart, privately in him. That is that resurrection call, the opening of his eyes, the calling out of death to life that made Timothy saved, right? But then the confession Timothy made is the outward public testimony that probably happened at his baptism. When Timothy was baptized, he confessed the good confession in front of everybody that Jesus is Lord, that his old life is dead and that he is following Christ. That is eternal life. So what is Paul saying here? I think what Paul is saying here in brief is that although this is a reality for Timothy, he should still work out his own salvation. He should grab hold of this, endure till the end, Timothy. It is the same thing he said in chapter 4, verse 16. Just briefly look over with, with me at 4, verse 16, when he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there is a sense where we are saved and we are still being saved as we work out our salvation. So grab hold of it. Beloved, the Christian life is hard. It will only get harder as we go along. And that's why you should not lose your grip on Christ. Keep on fighting for eternal life. Number four, fight for a total commitment to Christ. Fight for a total commitment. Paul next gives another charge based on his apostolic authority and wraps it in the reality of what Christ has done. And he says in verse 14, he must keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now, this was a difficult question for me when I, do you see the singular? Keep the commandment. One thing Timothy must do. So what commandment is Paul speaking of? Now, in the context, we already see Paul has given a lot of commandments. He said, pursue, flee, fight. So which commandment is he speaking of? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is, I think he's taking everything that he has already written in 1 Timothy and making it as one commandment, saying you should keep everything that I have written to you, what Jesus has commanded you, and keep it, as if it's only one commandment. You see, this is true for every Christian. In Matthew 28 verse 20, when Jesus said, teaching them to observe how many of his commandments? All that I have commanded you. You see, so the Christian cannot just be content to keep half of the commandments and let the other slide. We should, we should focus on all of them. We should not be content until we obey everything. But we should seek to obey all the commandments, but also all the way. What, is, what does he say in verse 14? To keep the commandments of the commandment, unstained and free from reproach. The idea here is to keep it in such a way that you are above reproach, unstained. So the attitude here is this. It's not like saying this. Well, I've tried my best. I mean, I'm doing better than most people out there. So isn't that enough? I know a lot of bad pastors, bad Christians. So at least I'm better than those people. Lord, thank you that I am not like other men. That's not the attitude we should have. We should focus to keep the commandment unstained. We should not lower the standard of holiness. We should seek to have a total commitment to all that he commands, all the way. That you, so even there where there's, even your motive isn't pure, you hate that and you confess that, you ask God to cleanse you, that you will be above reproach. Now, I'm not arguing that you will be sinless. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm arguing for what Paul said in Philippians 3. He says, I'm pushing forward. I'm not perfect yet, but I'm pursuing that. That's my goal is to be like Christ. The classic example of a half-hearted, half-in obedience is King Saul. Remember what he did. God commanded him to wipe out everybody and everything, but he spared the best of the sheep and the cattle, and he had the audacity to come to Samuel and say, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I love Samuel's response. Was, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And then he summarized Saul's half-hearted obedience in verse 22 like this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying? the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So like Timothy, you need to fight for holiness, for the truth, for eternal life and for a total commitment to all of his commandments, not just some of them. But thankfully, we have help. I wonder if some of you might have felt a bit down after you've heard all of these commandments. We need to just like, okay, who can do these things? How could we do this? And thankfully, we have almighty help from almighty God. And this is the last thing we need to fight for. Fight also for an eternal perspective. That is where we will draw our strength from to be able to endure till the end. Paul wraps this charge to Timothy by reminding him of Jesus' good confession before Pilate and God the Father who gives life to all things and then the future return of Christ. So there's a sense where Timothy must look to the past, look to the present, and look to the future to find his help. So first, look at what Tim Paul says to Timothy. Look to the past. Look to the past. Look at Christ's good confession what he says in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Paul reminds Timothy of Christ who made this good confession in, in history, in reality. It was before Pilate that Jesus confessed to be a king. Remember, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Jesus did not regard his own life. He did not want to protect his safety at the cost of testifying to the truth. He willingly gave up himself in love for us. And what Paul is saying is, Timothy, look to Christ, your example, your savior. The point would be this, Timothy, don't think of your safety your reputation. Don't regard so highly what other people think of you. Don't even be concerned about the consequences of obedience to Christ. Remember Jesus. He died for the truth. He, he was hanged on a tree. He made the good confession. And even though he died, yes, he is risen. He is seated at the right hand. He's glorified with the Father. And so too we even if we lose our lives on earth as we testify to the truth, we'll be risen with him, raised up with him. So Timothy, every one of you, pick up your cross and follow him. 
Now, Timothy, you must follow your Savior on the same road of suffering. You must now make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Don't be discouraged. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Timothy, look to the past. See your king. See your savior. But also, Timothy, look to the present. God gives life at this very moment. Verse 14 says, I charge, of verse 13, sorry, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Your help is not just in the past alone. Your help is in this very moment. God gives life right now to us. He both created us, but he's also sustaining us. Acts 17.24 is the classic passage here. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Your very breath you have right now to be able to continue to listen to this sermon that I hope God will give you the strength to do. <laughs> okay? That very breath comes from God. He sustains you. So instead of fearing what false teachers say or whatever else it might cost you to be a disciple of Christ, look to God your Father. Learn to fear Him who's your, in, in whose breath you're in his, whose hands your breath is. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two, two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Timothy and every believer, we have help in the past, by looking to Christ's faithfulness, we have help right now as we look to God, our Father, who gives us energy and life and breath. But we also need to look to the future, look to Christ's return and look there and be encouraged by that. Verse 14, keep this commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So in contrast to the false teachers who were living for instant gratification, living for thinking that godliness is a means of gain, Timothy is to live his life in the light of the second coming of Christ, in, in the reality that one day when Jesus comes again, then our glory awaits. The word appearing has the idea of a great unveiling of glory. It's not just him coming, but like a sun in full strength shining in his brightness on us. When Christ comes, we will finally see the one who died for us. Then every suffering we have ever suffered will be, will cannot even compare with the glory we will receive. Then every tear will be wiped away. Indeed, as one Puritan said, when we have that eternal perspective on our lives now, you would choose the very life you have right now. When you see how your life fitted in God's eternal plan for your life and for his plans. Now we don't see it. Now we wish we could have different lives often. But when we know Christ comes and he will make all things new, we will understand. And how fitting, therefore, is to end this section with praise. Look at how he praises God in verse 15 to 16. Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the he here is God the Father. He will display Christ's return at the proper time. Just like the first coming was perfect timing. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. So at the second coming, it would be perfect. God's timing is perfect. And the Bible repeatedly warns us that no one knows the timing of his coming. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. But some people say, but we can know the year. It's like, no. <laughs> okay. the, the point is, no, we don't know. We must always be ready for the second coming of Christ. When we see the wars in Palestine and Israel, that should just encourage you to be more ready. Earthquakes and famines and that has been happening for 2,000 years show us that we are in the end times. Be ready. We are in the final chapter of history. We must be faithful while we trust God's wisdom in His perfect timing. And this God is the blessed God, the happy God, the God who makes everybody else happy, from whom all blessing flow. Why? Because he is the only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Even earthly kings who were called king of kings, like Nebuchadnezzar, is under the kingship of God. I love how Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2.37 when he says, You, O king, the king of kings. Listen, Daniel is calling a human, person, a human king a king of kings. But immediately he says, To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. Nebuchadnezzar, you might be in charge of everybody, but God is in charge of you. You see? Proverbs 21 verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Nothing can thwart his purposes, nothing can frustrate his will, and this is our God. This is your Father. What peace, what security, what hope this should give you in the worst of circumstances. Even more, this God is the immortal God. He cannot be touched by death or decay. He never loses his energy from eternity to eternity, he is God. And what makes him unique is, although we will have an immortal body at the resurrection, God is the immortal by himself. He is self-existent. Where we, even if we have our resurrected bodies, will be dependent upon God to live forever. And he's also transcendent, so holy that he dwells in unapproachable light. That if any one of us would dare to approach God by our own lives, he will, his holiness will consume us. We will die instantly. But yet, because we have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, we can approach the throne of grace with all boldness. And this God has never and can never be seen. John Stott wrote, All that human eyes have been allowed to see is his glory, his back, not his face, his appearing as a theophany or his image in his incarnate son. Being in himself invisible, we can come to know him only so far as he has been pleased to make himself known. Otherwise, he is wholly beyond us. No man has any claim to have a relationship with God. You cannot demand God to love you, to have a relationship with you. He must condescend to us. And that is what he has done in his son. And therefore, what should you do? 
Verse 16, to him be honor and eternal dominion. I love what one commentator said. He says, honor is what Timothy and all creation owe God. We owe that to him. But might is what he possesses that makes any other response to him except honor inexplicable folly. He has all honor is due him, but he also has all dominion. And that's why honor is due him. Baba, what is your response to this king, this Lord? Do you honor him by your life, your total commitment to him? Have you humbled yourself over your sin? Are you half in, half out? Have you been flirting with sin, seeing how close you can get? Or are you fleeing and pursuing, fighting for holiness? But are you also fighting for the truth in your life? Are you fighting to grab hold of eternal life? Are you fighting for a total commitment? And are you fighting to have an eternal perspective over your life? Especially as we consider the second coming of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your word that lifts up our, our eyes to you, shows us your glory, your goodness, your faithfulness, your transcendence, and yet your imminence. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came for us to save us from our sins. But Lord, may we not have a passive approach to our sanctification, our holiness, our pursuit of godliness. May we both flee and pursue what is right. Lord, as we approach maybe the end of the year and many of us might go on vacation and rest a while, I pray that you would draw our hearts and incline our hearts to your word, your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. That We won't pursue worthless things, but pursue Christ, intimacy with Christ, knowledge of your word, a deeper um, intimacy with you, and also deeper holiness, Lord. Help us also, Lord, to prepare for next year, to plan well, to strategize what we need to be doing, what we need to stop doing as both individual Christians, but also as a church together, Lord, that we would be productive for your kingdom. Please give us the wisdom that we, that we so desperately need and lack. Thank you, Lord, for, for you and for what you've done for us. We pray these things for your namesake. Amen.